0: Welcome to The Gaggle, an AZ Central podcast where we chat with reporters, experts, and special guests to keep you fully informed on the state's political news. I'm your host, Yvonne Winget Sanchez. I cover national politics for the Arizona Republic.
1: And I'm Ron Hansen, also a national reporter for the Republic.
0: In today's episode, we're talking to Superintendent of Public Instruction, Kathy Hoffman.
1: We'll ask her about the plan to reopen Arizona's schools, and other details that every parent will want to know.
0: In March, in-person schools shut down as the coronavirus pandemic ramped up. The sudden transition was really difficult for teachers, for students and parents alike.
1: And then there was the debate on whether or not to reopen schools for in-person curriculum. The pressure to reopen this fall was amplified by President Trump earlier this month.
0: They think it's gonna be good for them politically so
2: they keep the schools closed, no way. So we're very much going to put pressure on uh, governors and everybody else to open the schools.
1: Some students and teachers have pushed back, asking Governor Doug Ducey to reconsider opening schools in August. This included a group of students and a Glendale educator who took to Twitter to make their voices heard.
2: Educators want to go back. Students want to go back. I want to see my students. But I will not stand by silently to watch Arizona become some kind of national experiment. If I die from COVID, please politicize my death.
0: And now, finally, a decision has been reached about what the first quarter of Arizona's school year will look like. Here to talk to us about that is Superintendent of Public Instruction, Kathy Hoffman. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So can you give us a sense of what the beginning of the school year will actually look like for kids and parents?
2: Yeah, so um, this year is going to look very different. I think we all need to be thinking about it in that way that this year will be like starting like no other that we've ever seen before. There may be some pieces of it that are reminiscent of the spring because all of our schools will be starting as distance learning. Um, That may look different from district to district. Many of our districts will be um, using online platforms, different platforms perhaps from district to district, but many of them are um, going in that direction and providing their students with laptops and the technology they need to get connected. We do have some parts of the state where there's still very limited broadband internet access and so there could also be areas that are um, going to have to be utilizing packet learning and reaching their students through other means Um, but by and large this is going to look very different because there's going to be a a lot of distance learning a lot of online learning um, teachers teaching from home and i know i know how challenging it is for parents to have their kids at home and perhaps work with parents working from home or then of course there's parents who who are still going to their work. Um, So I I know there's gonna be a lot of challenges going forward and we're trying to help support everyone as best possible in planning for this very different school year.
1: So uh, the question of how this school year would uh, begin obviously has been in the works for some time now. Uh, Governor Ducey at one point said that he would be comfortable sending his children to school in August. Um, Give us a sense of what how these conversations evolved over time and uh, leading up to the present moment. What was that like, you know, behind closed doors as best you can relate to us?
2: There has been a a lot of conversations about this, and I I do appreciate that close collaboration. We have um, always agreed that the safety is our primary concern that we want to make sure our schools are safe for children and teachers and staff and that that was one of our ultimate priorities. Um, In terms of the date, I think we, um, you know, we had strong agreement about the delay for in-person instruction until August 17th and so we, you know, we had that executive order announcement a few weeks ago. Coming up to this point, when it became more and more clear that August 17th didn't seem um, possible based on the, the health data and the fact that the COVID-19 numbers have not been declining at the rate we would like to see statewide. Um, then there was more conversations about do we push back the date? What what was the right date? Um, and I, I think that for me, what was important is um, Every time we have an announcement, the schools start scrambling. So every time there's a new executive order, um, new guidance in any way, it causes a pretty big disruption where everyone's trying to understand the new policies, trying to communicate that out to their parents and families. And so um, the way I was approaching it was how can we, for this next executive order, how can we... Um, how can we plan ahead and have a comprehensive executive order that allows for that flexibility so that we don't have to keep coming back to the table and and um, having every having a new announcement every couple of weeks based on the latest health data. And I also, um, for the future, for, would really love um, for this to be a more county by county type of decision. I know we're not there right now and I Recognize that that statewide we have very similar challenges across the state, so it makes sense to have a statewide approach. But my my goal is that someday we would get to a point where we have much more control over the virus, such that that the closures could be more isolated and more within a, a county or within a, a region. Um, so I wanted there to be more of that flexibility, um, and so that's how we got to this decision of. Um, of within this executive order, having DHS produce metrics um, so that we have more of a system in place that allows for that flexibility. And it's not just a date that that potentially keeps changing. So in
0: broad strokes, what is the decision? What is the big announcement on schools uh, that's going to be announced uh, on Thursday?
2: There's a couple different pieces to this announcement. Um, so the so the, I think a lot of people were expecting a date. So that's that is a big announcement that um, we're not having. We're not delaying. We're not we're not saying the new date is, which is what I think a lot of people were expecting. We are um, within the executive order. It is it is saying that the Department of Health Services will develop metrics, um, and that they will develop these by August seventh. And so this will be in in conjunction with our county health offices to help develop a framework that they can work, they can partner closely with our schools, with our school leaders to um, help determine whether or not schools should open and whether it's safe to be open. Um, The other, um, so that, so I know that there could be some, some questions about, so we, down the road, we don't, and we already see this. We already see some school districts who have said they're not going to start until October. So we're already seeing a little bit of that local control decision making around when schools want to be open, and there's going to be more of that, frankly. Um, but it should be based on the decisions made between the schools and their local county health office, and and really looking at this at this data set by these metrics. Um, another big piece of the executive order is requiring that. K-12 students and, and teachers and staff would be required to wear masks. That's also a, a fairly big change because before it's been left to local control decisions, but um, but there were parts of the state that did not have local ordinances around wearing masks. And um, ultimately we were in agreement that we want all of our students and teachers to feel safe at school and, and part of how to, um, one of the best ways that we can prevent transmission of the virus is by wearing masks, especially considering our, our schools are our places where the people come together in groups. We, we think that's really important for when schools do open that they would, um, that students would, and teachers would be wearing masks. And of course, there's some exceptions written into it for, um, for example, for, for students with medical conditions, but, uh, but that's really another another big announcement. So another big part of um, this announcement is with the in the prior um, in the prior executive order, there was some language about requiring schools to offer on-site services or learning opportunities, and and that was tied to the funding for distance learning. And we wanted to make sure that was clarified and and fine-tuned. Um, because the intent of that, which I I support, the intent, which is to make sure that kids who are who are most at risk or most vulnerable have a safe place to go. So, um, so for example, s- students with um, our and our schools are they know who they know who these students are. They know their most at risk student populations, and so in this new executive order, we're asking our schools to be. Evaluating that and determining which students they should be serving and providing those on site supports for and um, and that was that's really important because there, there are students who need a safe place to go and but in this case we wanted to provide more flexibility. And make sure that um, you know we're still saying our schools will be funded for distance learning, but we do want them to make sure there's a, a place for kids to go who need it the most. And I did talk to superintendents about this over the past couple of weeks, and I, I asked this I asked some of them, "Is this clarification okay that um, about making sure you're serving your most your highest need students?" and and they said, "Yes, we we agree. We want to make sure kids have a safe place to go," um, but they. In the prior executive order, there was a little bit of confusion about well, if we just say we need to serve any student who needs it that to that sounded a little bit like, "Are we just opening our doors? Are we going to get eighty percent of our kids back or more, and how is that any different from schools being open
1: um I'd like to ask you a question about um how this is going to work in in some ways. you've talked about metrics and that implies that there are certain You know, standards that will be applied differently in different parts of the state as as people reach those metrics and benchmarks and such. But give us a sense, like you know, for the mask policy is that something that will apply in private schools? Is this something that you know? Are there other aspects of this plan that will give school a very different feel across the state? Uh, from place to place in terms of the learning experience?
2: I do anticipate that there there will be significant differences from from school to school and from region to region. I think by and large, we're starting the year where everyone's more in the same boat in terms of we're all starting with distance learning. We're all trying to get technology out to students. I think our schools have already been working on that over the summer, um, using their CARES Act funding to purchase the technology to get kids online. Um, But but how education is delivered is gonna look very different from, uh, or it could look very different from, from you, you know, from area to area, from, from school to school, even just based on the platforms they choose. So for example, you could have schools that are doing more more like live Zoom classes with um, live interactions between students and teachers, but then you could have um, other schools where, you know, if they're thinking, well, maybe our kids don't really have great internet connection and they don't have the the same bandwidth internet at home or, or they have lots of kids. And, you know, so maybe they're gonna choose more like, um, recording videos that kids could go watch, um, because that doesn't use as much bandwidth. Um, So I think the delivery of instruction will, will vary quite significantly from, um, from area to area, just depending on what their access to technology is even.
0: Going back to those metrics that the Department of Health Services is going to be developing, what is the standard? What is the threshold for students to, um, or for those metrics to be for students to return to school?
2: So that's what we're saying they need to develop. And we will be you know, also giving feedback on, on those. But ultimately we agreed that we want our health experts, the epidemiologists to be setting those metrics. And so this executive order says, um, we think that by August 7th is a reasonable time. And that the again, our county health um, office, our de- departments and directors will be also working on this. And this is something our county health Um, Offices have also asked for because they already meet regularly with our um, super, most of them um, in most counties, they already have uh, relationships with their school districts. And that's something that we encourage is for our county health offices to be working really closely with our schools and making these types of decisions. In absence of these metrics, what's been happening is we're leaving these public health decisions to the local school boards. And frankly, elected school board members that's not, their, that's not necessarily their expertise to be making these types of public health decisions. And, and that's been one of our biggest concerns is someone has to decide if it's safe or not for schools to open. And so how are we making that decision? How are we giving our schools the tools they need to make, make a decision that's well-informed?
1: How are schools going to keep kids safe who only faintly understand what we're all dealing with here um, in terms of masking and social distancing? The, the physical structures of the schools were never designed with a pandemic in mind. Um, what is the uh, uh, expectation with regard to any kind of physical changes and, and compliance for those who really are going to be struggling to understand this the way that adults do
2: i think that's why our you know when i've been talking with our teachers and school leaders there's been a lot of conversations around social emotional supports and making sure that we're that our teachers have opportunities to build those relationships with kids and and be able to have those conversations with them Um, i I think one of our advantages is by the time school gets started in the next couple weeks kids are becoming more and more familiar with seeing masks out and about whether they're at the grocery store or out running errands Um, so kids are becoming more familiar with that but um but it will it will have a different feel to it when they get to school and with social distancing and um, all the other types of measures and mitigation strategies that our schools are implementing and i i would encourage that our um that our our school leaders, our teachers, really think about those social emotional components, and we've been providing a lot of resources on our, our website. We're offering free training for teachers as professional development on social emotional supports and trauma informed practices. Because also we we don't know what kinds of experiences our kids have been having over the past few months, and there could be many cases where kids have been in isolation and feeling feeling anxious or depressed and not being connected with their friends and having those typical child experiences like sports and activities that they would typically have in the summer. So we are anticipating that the social emotional piece will be critical going into this next school year.
0: Many kids also participate in individualized educational programs. So these plans that help map out kind of additional support and instruction for kids, for everything from speech therapy to, you know, other kind of emotional um, programs what happens with these programs in, in the fall? How, how will they change? Will they still get individualized, um, support from, uh, from school staff, uh, that looked pretty different in this spring. There was not a lot of one-on-one instruction. Do you anticipate that changing heading into the fall?
2: So when a student has an IEP, this individualized plan, um, they they're receiving special education services. And and so as a former speech pathologist, I'm quite familiar with how that would look in a typical year. Um, under these circumstances, and I've been in many conversations with with special ed teachers and speech pathologists and special ed directors. It is looking different, but but they they have also been going above and beyond to try to find ways to meet the needs of their students. So I've talked to for example speech Speech therapists who they bought a printer. They started making materials at home, mailing it to their students so that they could continue working with them in a similar way. And and the, and actually, it, it kind of created a situation where there was a lot more coaching between the special ed provider and the parent because since the um, the teacher wasn't there in person to help guide in the same way. Um, I did hear of that was one one benefit at least for some in some cases where. There was more coaching to the parents, and then they could help implement and teach and and guide in those skills. Um, I've I've heard there's been a lot of creativity around this, but we we do acknowledge too that there were also cases in the spring where it was really difficult to reach students, or or they couldn't reach their students, and in those cases, there there could have been regression of skills that the students might have fallen back in their progress, and in those cases, what what is recommended is that when the school year starts again, that the the team would come together, the parents, the teachers, the special ed providers would all come back together and assess do, does this child need compensatory services? Do we need to add additional hours to help them make up what has been lost and get them to where they need to be? And our department has made the decision to help support compensatory services by setting aside $5 million of our CARES Act funding that schools can apply for if they recognize that they need to um, to. Ha- have the funding to provide extra special education services to students in this coming school year. So we do recognize that this that this could have been um, that this in some cases was an an issue where students were not reached really sure or they they were falling behind and and make, and having regression. Um, so we are trying to be proactive about that as well.
1: So speaking about falling behind, I mean the end of the last school year was trimmed quite a bit. Uh, It's been a difficult summer for everybody. Um, I imagine that there's a lot of kids who are just behind, um, behind where they ought to be. I have a third grader now, you know, what will be done to sort of make sure that everybody's up to the baseline that you would expect them to be at, uh, at the beginning of the school year? Do you you imagine that the uh, curriculum is going to essentially start with an extended uh, refresher or, or, you know, some kind of steps taken to bring everybody up to where they need to get? And does that affect the whole school year moving forward?
2: Yeah, this is part of what keeps me up at night is, um, and this comes back to why it's so critical that we get to a point. We need to do everything we can to get to a point where schools can open again. Because every single day that we are doing distance learning, we we have we have an inequitable delivery and access to education, and it it really is this. Every single day our schools are closed, we have students out there who are not receiving a high quality education. It's not the same, it's not, it's, we can, you know, there are, there's some that have the resources at home and the supports and the technology that are, that it may be more comparable, but there's gonna be so many students across our state that we we know there's roughly 200,000 students that don't have adequate internet at home. So I am very concerned with what this next year is gonna look like, what this means for this generation of students. Um, it honestly breaks my heart to, to, to think about it, and so in terms of this idea of catch up, um, we do need to be careful that when I when I frame this, I, I like to also point out that it's not the children's fault. That this is a worldwide pandemic, and you know, especially hit, hit Arizona very hard here. So it is not any child's fault that they are behind, quote unquote, behind. Um, so what we need to do when school starts is we need to assess where they're at and meet them where they're at. And so that can, when I say assess, I mean, that can be just data collection, just checking in on their reading skills, like their fluency, their reading comprehension, um, have them write, you know, something, write a, however their level is, write a statement, write an essay um, to check where their writing skills are at. We just need to check in, see where they're at. And then um, through part of the CARES Act funding that is actually from Governor Ducey's bucket of funding, which is, referred to as the GEAR funding, um, he set aside $20 million for what, what is known as the Acceleration Academy funding. And that is to, is to support our schools and pr- providing extra support, extra teachers and extra training for our um, staff so that they can be providing those types of interventions for kids that need extra supports. Um, but I I do have concerns of Academically, where we're
0: going to be statewide um, in a year from now. So we've all kind of read the stories. We've heard the stories. We've been touched um, through our schools in some way uh, by teachers, uh, families that are getting sick or staff members at the school that are getting sick and in some instances dying. How are schools going to keep teachers safe? And is it is it even feasible or realistic to think that we're going to get through this without more teachers falling ill
2: another issue that keeps me up at night um it is very scary there's a lot of fear and anxiety out there and and again i think part of why there's so much fear when it comes to that for our teachers for the educational professionals for for the staff that work in our schools whether they're a bus driver or work in the cafeteria, work as an administrator, as like front, you know, the front office staff. For each one of these individuals, there is, throughout the school day, there is so much contact with other people. You have so many groups, so many, typically, so many people that you're interacting with in person. If you're the bus driver, how many kids are getting on your bus. And that is, you can't make the bus bigger. And uh, to buy more buses, to have more social distancing would cost millions upon millions of dollars. And we have some of our buses that travel hundreds of thousands of miles every week. So that's not realistic. So that's, I just wanna explain like where this fear comes from is, it's different than just going to, home depot where you can socially distance and you can you can monitor your own interactions with people and feel safer but when you go to a school we have large classroom sizes we have lots we, our high schools have thousands of people in them and then the, the data is just now coming out the research and data about transmission and for kids are, and are kids at high risk or low risk? And there's still a lot of questions and fear about what role kids are playing in the transmission or in in terms of the virus and the spread. So I, I think that um, this, this is going to continue to be a major challenge for our schools. And what I've encouraged them to do are to our school leaders. I sent a letter recently to all of them saying, please, Include your teachers in the decision-making process. Call them. Have virtual roundtables with them because they need to be empowered and they need to be a part of the decision-making process so that they trust the decisions being made. And no matter no matter where we go right now, there is a risk. Whether you, again, whether you're at the grocery store or you're getting your hair done or any of these things As with right now there's such high community spread that there's a risk no matter where you go but we just need to be aware that for our school settings it's a lot of people in a closed space and it's just a very different environment so i completely understand where where this fear is coming from and which is why we we do need to Put so much thought and planning and investment in the distance learning to make it as best as possible, because until it's safe for our teachers and staff and students to be back in the classroom we we need to be doing the, the best we can with our distance learning plans. Um, so i I know there's a, a lot of components to that um, and i I hope. I hope we can get to a place where, where teachers do feel safe returning to the classroom because I, I have already been hearing of um, a lot of teachers resigning and, and whether that's because they have a medical condition or they're worried about their family members um, or or they just want to take care of their kids at home. There's lots of different situations, but we already have a teacher shortage in Arizona, so we don't have we can't afford to lose any teachers, and that's already happening this summer even coming into this school year, we're already losing teachers. So that's why it's so critical to make sure that they're actively involved in the decision-making process so that we can do everything we can to make sure that they feel safe in this teaching environment.
1: So talk about one key part of that uh, a bit, if you would, and that's just the ability to uh, provide adequate supplies from hand sanitizers to masks to, anything else that has a cost to it. Uh, There's already concerns about inequities and funding across schools across the state. Um, How confident are you that there is adequate financial resources to meet the very real needs uh, of the kinds of supplies that will grant that kind of peace of mind for everybody involved in all this?
2: I think so based on what um, what I've been having the conversations I've been having with, with many of our superintendents and school leaders is there seems to be adequate supplies to start the year. It's more what I'm most more concerned about is sustaining those supplies, because, for example, the CARES Act funding is one time funding. um, There's also been funding available through DEMA that also can be used for the PPE and sanitization types of supplies. So there have been multiple funding sources to purchase things like masks and hand sanitizer, but it is very expensive. I have seen some of the school budgets of how much they're spending on these supplies. And so it's one thing to have enough to start the year, but... If um, and again, we're not starting the year in person, so that's that's going to be delayed a bit. So when, whenever the school does, whenever a school does is open for in person, um, that's when they're really going to be facing these costs, and being able to sustain sustain them is going to be a critical piece because that's not a typical part of a school budget. So they are using these supplemental funds from the federal level, from um, like I said, the CARES Act, the DEMA funding to purchase these things, but to sustain that is is going to be a challenge. And I I have spoken with um, the Department of Health Services about this and we've um, talked about maybe at the county level having, working out some way to make sure that there's backup supplies or, you know, if the school is running out of something that they would have a place to go to make sure that they don't run out.
0: So if you didn't have any limits on resources and you didn't have to work so closely with um, the governor or anyone else, when would you open schools and what changes would you make in today's order to, to open schools?
2: I can't again, I don't want to say a date. So I can't say exactly when I would open schools. i'm very I'm a very big supporter of having these metrics to inform those decisions so that our our school leaders can can be making those decisions with their local county health offices. But I can speak to if we had infinite resources, um I would prioritize expanding broadband internet across our state to make sure because that, to me that's a huge equity issue of whether or not a child has adequate internet at home is is going to make a world of difference in terms of their access and their opportunities to learn and to stay connected. Um, so I would start with um, the internet access and the technology piece. Um, I would I would give all teachers a raise. I think that's been a long time coming. I know we had the 20 by 2020 plan that, w- that was fulfilled, but, um, but we could do we could do more, we can do better than that. And and so, you know, as I traveled the state in the from when I since I took office to when COVID hit, I visited over a hundred schools in all 15 counties or, or 100, over hundred districts. And and so I heard firsthand the challenges of recruiting and retaining teachers and educators, and I can't tell you how many times people asked me. Since they knew, they knew I was a speech pathologist and they said, they said, hey, when you're done being superintendent, just so you know, we've been trying to hire a speech pathologist for well over a year, or we just can't can't fill our, our positions here. Would you be willing to do a speech evaluation here while, while you're here? So um, so th- those are some of the pieces I would be focused on is, is teacher recruitment and retention, making um you know i one thing i've always advocated for is is paid fmla that's i think that's even more important right now when we're thinking about taking time off whether you feel sick or worried about your own health or your your partner or your I have a family member or perhaps a parent that is sick being able to take that fmla and not worried about using up all your paid sick days and make sure make sure you can still get paid would also be phenomenal for as a, as a safety net for our educators. Um, another piece that also often gets overlooked is our classified staff. So the hourly paid staff, the bus drivers, the, um, like I said, the, the front office staff, the cafeteria workers who are paid hourly, they are typically paid minimum wage, which, um, but it's very hard also to recruit and retain them. Um, We have a major, major bus driver shortage across the state. And so we've actually been working with our partners at the Department of Economic Security um, and Commerce Authority to try to help fill some of those positions. But if we could also give them a raise and have them, I would love for them to be salaried so that they, for example, I knew a paraprofessional that because she was paying for she, was, um, she wanted to have the district's health insurance for her and her family. But as a result, because her paychecks were, her, her hourly pay was so low and she was paying for her family's health insurance through the district, every paycheck she owed the district money. And that is insane. Our, fam- our educators, people working in our schools, should have health care benefits. They should have a reliable paycheck. And, and they deserve more for all the work that they do with, with our children.
1: We've got one more question for you here. Um this pandemic has necessarily changed so much of what we do with school, how we think about it and and the way that children are learning and, and such. Does this how does this impact um the argument for school choice? Uh and especially for programs like the Empowerment Scholarship Accounts, uh does this Really, sort of strengthen their argument that this is something that people want or or should have. Um, how, how does this play into public schools versus alternatives?
2: That's a great question. I think um, there's definitely some pros and cons in here, and I have seen some um, some new interesting models popping up even across the country. I've I was just reading about this idea of having pods. Uh, of families coming together and hiring a teacher, and so we are seeing some new instructional models. Um, but I've there, there's there's so many there's so many ins and outs of this. So, um, so for example, I I just recently heard of a charter school that is closing because um, their families are so divided about whether or not to wear masks. And so half, you know, roughly half are saying, I'm only sending my kid if you require masks. And the other half are saying, I'm only sending my kids if um, you're not requiring masks. So you have this divide and they can't sustain themselves um, with only half their students. So um, there's some challenges like that. And then, um, but then another, another concern I have with with having, you know, we have such open enrollment in Arizona and, and so much choice for schools, which um, there's benefits to that. But another challenge with that would be especially in this going into this next school year where different districts are doing different things. Having student mobility is not, it's typically, typically has detrimental effects to their education and their relationships with their with peers and teachers and and so we would not advise for children to be transferring from school to school to school trying to find the best model for themselves and i i do worry that under these circumstances there could be more of that because a family could say oh i i prefer that model over there of that platform i'm hearing good things from from my neighboring district so i'm going to transfer over there so I, i do i have some concerns about uh, about this model, but um, but I think i I do think it'll be interesting to see how this plays out in, in terms of the different choices families are making. and and again, seeing some unique instructional models. But ultimately, for me, what I'm most worried about is is equity, and that having diff- having these types of models, i I see a, a bit more of the what's what's available for those who can afford it and who have the resources at home, whether they can, they get hired tutors, they can buy all the the newest and greatest versus those who don't even have internet at home, who don't, a family who doesn't know how to use a computer, the parents don't know how, they don't have the computer literacy. We, We have the whole range in Arizona. And so I, that's how I think about it is, is what are we doing to make sure that Every child has access to a high-quality education, and I'm very concerned about that access right
1: now. Well, very good. Um, Superintendent Hoffman, thank you so much for your time and for uh, helping us understand all the evolving uh, uh, situation in public education. Um, Thank you, and we will let you go.
2: Thank you. I appreciate it.
0: All right. Well, that is it for today, Gaggle listeners. While we still have you, please don't forget to rate and review our show and share it with a friend. And as a courtesy note, audio in today's episode came from CNN and Sophia Hammer on Twitter. If you want to reach out to me on Twitter, I'm at Yvonne Winget.
1: And I'm at Ronald J. Hansen, and that's H-A-N-S-E-N.
0: Today's episode was edited and produced by Marita Dominguez with oversight from Katie O'Connell. Thanks so much, as always, for listening to The Gaggle, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. We'll see you next week.